Today is June 11th. It is 2017. Our message is called Getting Wrecked in Turkey. The reason that I'm taking the time before we start the message today to pray for the unborn, those who uh, are our future generation of warriors here, the reason that I'm saying that we are to possess the gates of our enemies is because we are in a generational battle. And unfortunately, many of the generations before us that have done many noble things have dropped the ball in the generational battle. The Christian birth rate is not even half that of the Muslim birth rate. We are simply not raising up the generations that we should raise up. I intend to change that. I believe that we can do it spiritually and we can do it physically. So LCM is going to become the most fruitful church that the, this area has seen. Yeah, look, 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 at, uh, look at your spouse if you're single. Shut up for a minute. Look at your spouse and say, we're going to get busy. Now, I know that seems to you uncouth. I'm an uncouth guy, and I'm not at all concerned with what you think about that. When I say let's get busy, I mean it in every way that you can think that I mean it. I mean we're going to produce natural children. We're going to produce spiritual children. We're going to see a harvest of righteousness raised because the world depends upon it. If there are no Christians to cross the globe and bring the message of the great news, then other people's babies die without ever having heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we had a prophecy come forward during the worship service. And the prophecy was about a harvest of righteousness. I want you to know that James 3.18 says, The man who sows in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. The Hebrew concept of peace is not the absence of hostility. The Hebrew concept of peace is intense warfare, but everything is in its right place. Jesus was the Prince of Peace, but in every chapter, He's contending with someone. To be at peace as a Christian, to be at peace as somebody with a Judeo-Christian background, means that you're in right order with God and with man. It does not mean that your life is free or easy or has no conflict in it. Just the opposite. I believe that God is reordering our church to fight the proper battles. I believe that God is allowing weakness to come to the forefront that He might pour His strength in. I believe that He is allowing our strength to move to the background that no glory might compete with His glory. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Getting wrecked in Turkey. When we're talking about getting wrecked in Turkey, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the entire Bible... Jesus Christ is the star of. When we're speaking about the Older Testament, the Older Testament records the world's preparation for Christ. The law is the forming of our hearts. The prophets, the warning of our souls. The writings, the instruction of our actions. When you move into the Newer Testament, the Gospels record the manifestation of Christ. They record the fact of His birth, the fact of His death, the fact of His resurrection, the fact of His ascension. By the time you reach the book of Acts, we're speaking about the propagation of Christ. How to take what we just heard and change the world with it. So Acts focuses on the birth of the church and the birth of the mission of the church. By the time you get to the epistles, we're looking at the interpretation of Christ. Why did He need to be born? 
Why did he need to die? What was the reason for his resurrection, the reason for his ascension? Follow me here. The Old Testament, preparation. The Gospels, manifestation. The book of Acts, propagation. The book of the epistles, the letters, interpretation. What is the book of Revelation ultimately about? It's about the coronation of the world's king. Today we're going to look at how the church started. We're going to look at where the church started. What church is addressed in the book of Revelation. And what church must exist at the coronation of our Christ. This is one unified message from Genesis through Revelation. All 66 books are aiming at one telos, one goal. Now when I say wrecked today, in English we would spell wrecked with a W. The word that I'm speaking of in Hebrew is the Strong's number 7386. It's a resh, a yod, and uh, a pay. And it's transliterated R-E-Y-Q, wreck. The reason that I'm bringing it up is because it appears in this verse. Let us go to Genesis 37 and verse 23. Say there when you were there. Two girls are there. Where are you, DCD? Where are you, DCD? We sent some of our men to Victoria to aid in a battle that is ongoing there. Our brothers in all six of the churches of the One Association this morning have a singular focus. We want to win, and we are going to win, because the overcoming power of Jesus Christ is in us. In Genesis 37, we see the use of the Hebrew word wreck. Verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was wreck. It was empty. There was no water in it. The first time this word appears in the Bible, it simply is speaking about having no water in a well, having no earth in a hole, that it is empty. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? How empty do you think Joseph felt at this moment, though? He's been sold out by his brothers and thrown in a hole. He doesn't even have the destination of the slave traders to go to yet. He just knows he's utterly rejected. There's not even a step towards getting out of the hole at this moment. I bet he was as empty as that hole is. How did his life finish, though? Zaphonoth Paneah, the very savior of the world. Here in the very first use of the word wreck, we find... An extraordinary truth that God likes to fill things that are empty. He likes to take the broken and raise them to great heights. He likes to take the contrite and make them conquerors. We serve a God that is the God of the underdog. He could have simply saved the Caesar and the whole Roman Empire would have followed. He could have caused a vision to appear in the skies around the world. There are so many ways that he could do it, but instead he took 12 scared Jewish boys and used them to change the world because our God likes the underdog story. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. When you get to the 6th chapter, say, I'm there. In the 6th chapter... 
Slide your finger to the 18th verse. 17th verse. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he finished sacrificing the burnt offerings. When? After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person. Somebody say each. Each Each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. Men and? Men and? And all of the people went to their homes. After the great king of Israel had finished the sacrifice, he had gifts for men. Not some men, not a few men. Each man. Not just each man, each man and each woman in the whole crowd. If you were in love with the king of kings, if his sacrifice is atoning for your very soul this morning, then he has gifts for you. Whether male or female, he has a gift for you. It is up to us to be empty enough to have a place to put it. It is up to us to carve flesh out of our life so that we can be filled with a heavenly power. You know, when a man is broken, when things are difficult, you find plenty of room for God's help. But in our successes, we very often have no room for God's help because we think we have no need. So the place in a man's life that he is actually the most vulnerable is when he has been the most successful. And the place in his life that he is the most positioned for the kingdom is when he is the most crushed. Perhaps this is why blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. So what then are we to do? Do you stand up and light your belongings on fire? What are we to do? Well, from King David we have a good hint coming. Look at verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, why was he going home? Husbands, I hope when you go home, your family finds it a blessing. If they don't, you need a life-altering experience, a collision with the Holy Ghost. David was on his way home to bless his household. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Vulgar is an English word that comes from a Latin word. It means common, debased. What is she accusing him of? While she's watching in her ivory tower, while she is staring down her religious prideful nose at what is happening in the street, she misses the fact that the king of Israel who has humbled himself to the place where he is dancing in his underwear in the streets, has also provided a sacrifice for the whole nation. And he has also given gifts to every man and every woman there. He has also done an extraordinary and marvelous thing. But what does she see? Any common, ordinary thing. A vulgar thing. The ministry of Jesus was much like this. You know, he hung out with whores and tax collectors. He was accused of being a drunkard and a wine-bibber. People had a hard time accepting that he was anything other than a carpenter's son. 
And it's the same today. We're pretty sure that because of all Christ has done for us, we're better than the average man. We speak better. We act better. We live better. In fact, the point of us coming to Christ is to be better. I say that that is a load of fertilizer and that you knew it when you thought it and you knew it when you said it, but you've spent your life trying to defend it. The truth is we are the distressed and the indebted, the outcast of the earth, those who have been so upset with the way things are, we're broken enough to say, I will give my life to you, Lord. I will give it away with no ownership of it because you will do better with it than I can. That's what a real Christian is. Do you know it's an interesting thing? Michael did not say in Hebrew that David was a profane fellow. She did not even say that he was a vulgar fellow, although I understand why it's translated that way. She said, you are an empty, a wreck fellow. The same word is the word used for cistern earlier. Empty, devoid of anything inside. Well, ladies, if your husband looks at you and says, you've got nothing going on upstairs, that's not a compliment, is it? But this wife looking at her husband saying, you're empty, she means to be an insult and is a compliment of the highest order. Ask yourself, what is he empty of? Arrogance, self-reliance, pride. What is he empty of? Perhaps his empty nature, his letting go of his kingship and becoming like an ordinary person would foreshadow the Christ and the followers of the Christ. Perhaps the emptying of himself actually provided a man that God could use. What would it look like if we got empty? It was before the... David says in verse 21 to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. When the great prophet went to David's house, when Samuel went to David's house, did he ask for David? When Jesse gathered his sons... To go out to meet the prophet, did he invite David? Did David's brothers esteem him and want him to be in their number? You even find out that David's parents rejected him in Psalm 27. The stone always gets rejected, but it's marvelous in the eyes of God and he will make it the capstone. So we're not seeking to be the upper echelon of society. What we're actually seeking to do is win the heart in favor of God. Listen to how we empty ourselves in verse 22. I will become even more undignified than this. Somebody say even more. Even more. You know, the night that you got saved, the day that you got saved, what did it look like? Were you full of tears? Did you get on the ground? Did you want to tear your clothes and beat your chest? Many years after we're saved, after he's done so much more for us than just salvation, we walk into church with our Sunday best on. We're perfectly put together. No more tearing of the soul. No more rending of the garment. No more crying out for the heart of God. Because after all, we've done that. We've been there. And now we have the t-shirt and the mug that says we're a Christian. 
Maybe this emptying process is an ongoing process, a forever process. You know, Michael thought he was being obscene and common, but he was really being holy and uncommon. He was empty of concern for this world, religious pride or rather pride of any kind that fills our minds with our own thoughts rather than the thoughts of God must be emptied out. How often in a day do you stop to consider whether you served God in the last hour? Wow, isn't that a a revealing thought? That it can be 12 o'clock, it's lunchtime, and you've given no thought to what you've done with the breath that God has given you between waking and now. Who owns those breaths? Who owns your life? See, we're to be completely empty from the moment that we come into him because the price of admission into the kingdom was everything that you have. Have you spent all the rest of the time trying to gain back that which you gave away? And if you do, might you lose the very thing you sought to save? You know... It's an extraordinary thing in the Bible. Michael receives a curse that is beyond most curses. Sometimes a curse seems to be a spiritual thing that kind of floats on someone. Other times it's the consequence of an action. This one is the loss of a blessing. Watch this. There are seven women in the Bible that cannot have children. Seven that are named. Seven's a number that God likes. It's an interesting number. Sarai or Sarah... The wife of Abraham, she's barren, says so in Genesis 11.30. Rebecca, <clears throat> the wife of Isaac, in Genesis 25.21, she is also barren. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, in Genesis 29.31, barren. Do you notice that the founding fathers of our faith all married barren women? Why do you think that is? Did they have a sign around their neck that said barren? Or is it the righteous that have trouble having children? See, there's no re. Have you ever wondered, hey, why is it that that person who is addicted to drugs, that person who doesn't want their child, conceives so easily? And you have to fight so hard because your child is dangerous to the enemy. That's why. Because they're a threat. They're like an arrow in the hands of a warrior. In Judges 13, Manoah's wife is said to be barren, and of course she gives birth to Samson. Hannah, in 1 Samuel 1, 5, barren. Elizabeth, in Luke 1, verse 7, barren. There's only one woman in all of the Bible who was barren, said to be barren, and never had a child. It seems that if you are full of yourself, God will not fill you with Himself. There has to be an exchange. There has to be a giving away of self if you want God's presence to fill you. Life is such a miracle. Those fighting for theirs know this. Those that have not had to fight for theirs often forget it. See, success is an intoxicating thing. It dulls your senses. It causes you to miss what is important. You will never walk by a hospital And hearing somebody say that they're sorry they spent so much time with the Lord. You never hear them saying they're sorry they invested in their families. You do often hear them saying they're sorry they chased success the way that they did. 
Of these seven barren women, let's look at the definitions of their names. Sarai means contentious. Sarah means princess. Husbands, look at your wife and... No, don't you dare do it. It's going to say there's hope. But Jesus already changed them, right? Come on, that's a good place to say amen. amen. Are you married to a contentious woman or a princess? princess. Wives, are you nervous as all get out of what he's going to say out loud? Are you contentious or are you a princess? Because God's not just in the life-changing business for the men. It turns out that when you're insecure because you're not in control of your life, that you can be contentious. Learning that we're never in control of our lives, not male or female. That the living God is the one that is in control, can turn you into a princess. You might even learn to follow Him as He follows Christ. You might learn to do that because you recognize your very salvation in His too is at stake. Rebecca's name means noose or snare. And this, this uh, Hebrew idiom is meant to say she's captivating. One look at her, who the Bible says was lo- beautiful and lovely in form. Right? Yeah, Christy thinks that's funny. The rest of you are like, what? <laughs> beautiful and lovely in form. I need to explain that, don't I? <laughs> Thank God saved by the elders. Rachel, and a ewe lamb, this is a, a desirable trait in, uh, in the Bible. They're, they're, they're beautiful. Manoah's wife has no name. Hannah means grace or favor. Michael is a contracted form of the longer word, uh, Michael. And it means he who is like God, or in this case, just who is like God. Elizabeth, God is my oath. These are the seven barren women of the Bible, six of whom received their child, and one of whom is nameless. Is that an interesting list? Watch what it does. When you put their names in order and just read them as a sentence, a contentious one becomes a princess that ensnares the the lamb. We don't know his name. His grace and favor makes us like God. God is my oath. Well, they may not have known his name then, but we know his name now, don't we? What's that name, church? Jesus! Can you believe that God is working through your struggle to have children? Through across seven, seven different women, he was working to tell his story, wasn't he? Can you believe that the God of the universe is at work, whether you're in your 40s or you're, or you're in your 20s? He's at work through your offspring? That's an incredible thing. You think everything is against you. God might just be writing your story. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Turn with me to Judges 11. Say there when you were there. Man, that's like popcorn going off. Makes me hungry. In Judges 11, slide down and discover verse 3. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. He was driven away by his brothers. They didn't want this illegitimate son to share in their inheritance. He was also a great warrior. So God provided a great war. 
and his brothers needed his help. Jephthah had around him a group of adventurers. And Jephthah and his small group of adventurers accomplished something that all the rest of the tribes of Israel couldn't do together. They went and delivered a death blow to the enemy. They struck him with a right hand and a left hand until he no longer was able to rise. Then, of course, the rest of Israel forgot about Jephthah. You know, the word adventurer is wreck. It's an empty man. A man without fear. A man without concern for the things of this world. A man who is not driven by what his neighbors think of him. A man who is not concerned about the outcome because the Lord has already said what the outcome is. Merging the concepts of empty men and emptying yourself of worldly concern. We want to turn our attention towards the fruitful bride. It turns out that those seven women that we spoke about earlier show up throughout the Bible in various ways. How many churches are there in the book of Revelation? And they are the bride of Christ. Somebody has to be willing to fight for the bride of Christ. Somebody has to be empty enough of their own life and their own concern to fight for God's priorities and God's concerns. As men in this church, we are learning to be the most loving husbands the world has ever seen. Look at your girl and say, hey. Oh, that wasn't good. Man, some of you, especially, some of you got no game. How are we going to be fruitful if you got no game? Praise God for the eternal contract, right? We not only want to be the most loving husbands the world has ever seen, we want to be the most tender fathers to our children that the world has ever known. But we also want to be known as lion killers. We live in a world where they say that you either have to be macho bravado like John Wayne or you have to be some kind of strange metrosexual that I don't want to name. I'm telling you that men of God are made in a way where if you'll throw away your skinny jeans and your pink umbrellas, you can stand up and kill a lion and go home and hold your wife and teach your children. We were put together with more complexity than the world has tried to cram us into. We are neither cavemen nor are we whimpering eunuchs hiding behind poetry. We're capable of poetry and putting to death the lion and the bear. Look at your girl and say, yeah. 2 Samuel 23, 20 is a story about a man named Benaniah. Benaniah is a name that means built by God, constructed by God. Benaniah is the son of Jehoiada. In 1 Chronicles 27, 5, Jehoiada is a priest. If Jehoiada is a priest, what does that make Benaniah? He's a Levite. He's supposed to be a priest. You know, one of the most shocking things to people is I'm out in the world outside these four walls and we get to talking like guys do, you know, and guys are terrible. They size each other up all of the time. They're like, in the first few minutes after giving each other's name, what do guys always ask? What do you do for a living? You know, you want my shoe size too? What's, what's, what's behind that question? 
What do you do for a living? Look at him and say, well, I'm not making much of a living at it, but I'm a pastor. You're kidding me. You're a pastor? Is it like a motorcycle club or, you know, what, what's going on, you know? I said, no, no, I'm a pastor. You have to imagine that Beninaya was something like that because he wasn't wearing a clerical collar. See, he wasn't hiding in a woman's dress in, in, in the confines of a stone structure, never going outside because he couldn't see the sunlight outside the stained glass. Benaniah was the son of a priest, but he was also a valiant fighter. Where are the priests of God that also want to pick a battle with the enemy? Where are the priests of God that can go home and be tender to their children, but the lions of hell better fear their very existence? Benaniah had been built by God, and he knew how to deliver a blow with the right and the left hand. He was a valiant fighter from Kesbiel who performed great exploits. When you consider the list of men his name appears in, Some of them fought with 700 at one time and prevailed. And yet his exploits are called great. That must mean they were pretty great. For brevity's sake, he lists just a few here. He struck down two. Somebody say two. Two. Two of Moab's best men. He didn't go pick the little squirrely runt in the back that nobody wanted to play dodgeball on the same team with. He picked two of the best. Think through that for a minute. Most of the time when one man picks a fight with another one, it's because he feels like he's definitely got it. Very few enter into a contest they know they can't win. It's usually for love of someone that you would do that. Benaniah doesn't pick a fight with one of Moab's worst men. He picks the best. And he doesn't just take one. He takes two. Oh man, there's something of a victorious spirit in that, isn't there? The body of Christ is supposed to have a victorious spirit. The body of Christ is supposed to say, the odds are against me. That's no problem because Christ is with me. We don't count and calculate so that we decide whether we enter the contest. We count and calculate to make sure we kill them all when we were done. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into, say down, down, into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Will you serve the Lord if the sun is not shining? You know, it's such a crazy thing. We were talking about this this weekend. If the lion is in the pit, why doesn't Benny and I just stroll on by? Because he was born to kill lions. You know, you see a snake, you might run off. But if your job's to kill snakes, you run after it. He felt like his job was to put lions down. Now, what's the problem with the lion being in a pit? You can't get away from him. But that's not how men of God think. You don't look at that lion and say, if I go down there, I'll be vulnerable. I can't get away from it. You go down there and you say, because Christ is with me. He can't get away from me. That lion, he might run faster, but not in a hole in the ground. He might be bigger, but that just means I can stand on his dead body to get out of this hole when I'm done. Somewhere, the victorious spirit of Christ has got to rise in the body of Christ. Somewhere, we have to be willing to fight. There are so many things that men aren't willing to fight for, and I get it. Apathy set in. You might fight for your lazy boy chair and the remote control, 
But when it comes to fighting to be the primary influence in your child's life, you know, I got to work. In my experience, the last threshold, the place where the most docile will have their little claws come out, is they will fight for their bride. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm trying to move you to a place where you realize Jesus Christ wants you to fight for his bride. He needs you to fight for his bride because you're his body on earth. And I just got to tell you, if I come back from Turkey and found out six men beat up my wife in the parking lot, I'm not just looking for those six men. I'm looking for every one of you that knew that it happened and did nothing to stop it. What do you think Jesus Christ would be looking at at the separation of the sheep and the goats when he returns? It's going to take men who are built by God, who are empty of the world and filled with the fire of God to fight for the bride of Christ in the days to come. They will be the kind of men who don't care about the odds, the climate, or the adversities because they are priestly warriors. You know, Benaniah enters into a contest with a seven and a half foot tall Egyptian. He takes his own weapon from him and he kills him with it. No matter what the odds were, he moved forward because God compelled him forward. We are reaching backwards in time. We're trying to recapture that spirit of Benaniah, that warrior spirit, so that we can better understand what we must become in the days to come. Somehow or another, the ideal Christian model in this new millennia is a pastor with a effeminate voice, a big white smile, very successful, and a lip-wristed handshake. If he's an intellectual with books behind him in the photo on the brochure he handed you of himself, we love him. This was never true in history. Jesus was a carpenter's son with calluses on his hands. He was mistaken as common, not scholarly. He picked not one scholar among his, li- his followers in his lifetime. Not one. I love education. But our education has outpaced our obedience, and that's a problem. We're going to have to learn what it is to pick up the sword. We're going to have to learn what it is to pick up the shield. We're going to have to stand up, get up, go up, and and get some fight in us again. Exodus 15 teaches us that our God is a warrior. And somehow or another, His church often resembles a stooping asthmatic. When I reach back in time and often re-wet my own soul with this warrior spirit, I move through men like Eleazar, son of Dodai, whose hands froze to the sword. I look at men like Shammah, whose very name meant awe and desolation. I look at King David and how he got up from each one of his problems and kept going. But in more modern times, one of my favorites is C.T. Studd. At the men's retreat, we learned about something called the DCD. Have you heard DCD this morning? Is there anybody in the room that does not know what that quite means yet? I love that all the female hands went up. It just so happens that I have in front of me C.T. Studd's own writings about what DCD means. 
There was a soldier that he calls a British Tommy. And he had a quality that not everybody had. When soldiers were going over the wall and it was 50 to 1 that they would never return. And 100 to 1 that if they returned, they would return maimed. Tommy always went over the wall. So they were asking, what is it that makes him different? Somebody said, well, ask the sergeant major. Now the sergeant major had trained Tommy. So he knows him. And he replies, well, sir, it's this way. Tommy don't care a damn about what happens to him. As long as he does his duty by, by his own arm with the king, his country, his regiment, and himself. Yes, that's it. That's the very thing. The only way to describe it. He don't care a damn what happens to him as long as he pleases his king and country. That's it. That's what we need. That's what we must have. A DCD attitude that says, I don't give a damn about myself as long as Jesus Christ is glorified. Yes. Which makes the greater demand of its soldiers? The British Empire? Or the king of the eternal empire? For which one should we have more dedication? For which one should there be more valor? For which one should there be more determination? Now, I can feel the bristles in here. Say, Eric, you often push things too far. They said the same thing about C.T. Stubb. They had a serious problem with his use of the word damn. This is his response. You see, a man is either DCD... Or he's not DCD. The very term declares he doesn't care anything about anything other than the glory of Jesus Christ. It's plain, therefore, that those that are in the anti-DCD camp, they do care for something other than the glory of Jesus Christ. Probably their own reputation. At least you know where you stand. DCDs don't care a damn for anything except the glory of Jesus Christ. They may die, their reputation may rot and stink as long as they do it in the service of their king. Somebody say DCD. DCD. Besides, the Lord Jesus did use these terribly vulgar words. Just the very words too that the naughty people of our time use. The devil, hell, blood, and yes, the word damn. Didn't the Lord talk freely about the devil in hell? Didn't he say, he that believeth not shall be damned? Are you, Mr. and Miss Christian, suggesting that we please the devil by ceasing to talk about the blood because to their shame, some people use the word wrongly? And didn't the Lord say, whosoever shall be ashamed of me, hear this, and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed? Because men use money wrongly. Am I not to use money rightly? Because men gamble over horses. Is it a sin or unchristian to ride a horse? Didn't Jesus say, how shall we escape the damnation of hell? And what about the Holy Ghost in Paul, who wished himself could be damned if others thereby could be saved, and who prayed for the damnation of all or any who should preach a gospel other than that of Christ, or who wrote to the Corinthians that drastic finishing touch, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be damned. Is that shocking to you? Are we not in our Bibles enough? 
For the learned and saintly bishop Lightfoot has told us the word anathema, let them be damned, cursed, was the strongest curse word known among the ancients. Written in your Bible. And yet our Lord and His apostles did not scruple to use it. I have no scruples myself, said Stud, in using this word aright. But I decided that if I ever become an apostate to Christ, like those out there, I will at least be consistent and change the words in my Bible to rectify my supposed sin and the sin of my Lord when he used the words damn and damnation. In my apostate condition, I will begin by crossing out those obnoxious words Jesus used, altering them in the following ways. He that believeth not shall be spliff-located. How shall ye escape the spliff-location of hell? I will greatly prefer the words of our Lord himself used. For I aspire not to be his teacher, but his would-be follower. Next time you hit your hand with a hammer, say, God, spiff-locate it! Somehow or another, the church has been disarmed, our teeth have been pulled, and the lion of the tribe of Judah is treated like a house cat sitting by a fire. C.T. Studd was a rich man and he divested himself of wealth to evangelize Africa. He died in a tent on the African plains. The man gave away millions of dollars in the 1880s and made himself a pauper in a single day, which in my mind makes him a prince of heaven. Proverbs 13.6 is where I wish to go now. And I pray that you'll come with me. Because we're about to turn our sights on Asia Minor or Turkey. Righteousness guards the man of integrity. But wickedness overthrows the sinner. I love that verse. It's so straightforward. Righteousness will be your guard, not people's opinions. Righteousness. If the whole world calls C.T. Studd filthy for his use of the word damn, if they say he's brutish or barbaric, but he is righteous in Christ because he has the approval of God for what he does and not what he does not do, then I say that guards him. But wickedness overthrows the sinner. Strange that the man who would never use a word like damn also would never go into a foreign land and teach about Jesus. He cares so much about what people think that he dare not go among the unbelievers to share what he supposedly thinks. Verse 7 is becoming, for me, an important verse. Buddy returned from Peru with this instruction, and it was so good. One man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. I think if you dwell on this verse a minute, you might see that one man pretends to be rich in worldly things, yet he has nothing of spiritual value. Another pretends to be poor in worldly things, yet he has great wealth in the spiritual realm. How cool is that? But it gets better. A man's riches may ransom his life. What do you think that means? 
Well, if you get kidnapped in Turkey or in Matamoros and you're a very wealthy man, maybe you can trade your wealth for your life. Does that sound like what that means? What if being a very rich man, you've already traded your life for your wealth? If you had to give up everything that really is life to gain the things that you now have, do you have heaven? See, it's such an interesting thing. The pearl of great price. What did you have to sell to get the pearl? Everything. So you can look at what you have and you have what you have, but you can't have the pearl and what you have. If you have, then you do not have the pearl. Of course, if you're empty, then you might be holding on to the pearl. Do you see the way in which riches can be blinding? Say, Pastor, I don't know what you're saying, man. You've been here a long time. You ought to know none of us are rich. Aren't you, though? How many of your families came in more than one car today? How many of you woke up to drinking water, live in an air-conditioned house, How many of you this month have spent more than $50 on entertainment? I mean, think through this, aren't you? If the citizens of the world were in this room represented by a hundred people, would you not be the richest man in the room? Just by virtue of the clothes that you're wearing and the place that you're at. The poor in this country have more than almost every other country, and I'm not a communist. That's a great idea until you run out of everybody else's money. And the government's the last place I would want to entrust anything. But we are supposed to use everything that we have, everything that we have, for the glory of God. So you make those promises. Lord, if you give me this house, man, I'll use it for your glory. But you lied. You you hadn't used it for His glory but one day in 300. Do you have things or do those things have you? Lord, everything I have is yours. Can I borrow your car today? Or should I just ask the Lord to borrow it? Do you see how we do this? We trick ourselves constantly. We, no, 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 I gave my life away. I, I've lost my life for Christ. Really? Let me borrow your watch. Well, that, that was my grandfather's watch. So is it your grandfather's or is it Jesus? No, it's mine. It's on my wrist then why can't I have it? Because it's mine. How can it be yours and be Jesus? Oh, this is not the kind that you're going to salute me for. I understand that. But we haven't got to the best verse in Proverbs. A man riches may ransom his life. What's that second line say? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. No, you've misunderstood me. I can't hear you. Oh, man. They sent an officer of the court one time into this building to serve one of the pastors a very threatening letter. And I threw him out. And uh, when I threw him out, I was threatened by the judge. Later, the judge ruled against me. Once you've already been ruled against, what do you think I'm going to do the next time they send an officer of the court here? What do they have left? Right? It's like receiving a death sentence. Once you're on death row, why not kill a few more inmates? (laughs) 
You know why they put TVs in jail? Why they air condition jail? And why there's a place that you can buy cigarettes and other utilities in jail? So they still have something to take from you. That's not a joke. Because I found out if they took everything away from the people, they were uncontrollable. Let's think about that for a minute. You know, once you've lost your reputation, once you've lost your finances, once you've experienced the death of the people that you love, what's left to do to you? See, losing your life might not look like you think it looks. It might not just be at a moment where you promised it and never actually thought you'd have to deliver on it. Losing your life might be when you've been in enough battles on the losing side that you've got not one more thing left to lose. See, there's nothing to threaten the poor man with. The poor are also called rich in... Rich in... Do you want to be rich in this world or do you want to be rich in faith? See, you become a dangerous man. You might be walking by a pit and somebody else go, I can't go, I can't go down in that pit because if something happens to me, then, then who will take care of my kids? But the man with not one thing left to lose says the same God that would have to take care of me, have to take care of my kids, I'm killing lions today. Because he doesn't have those kids. The Lord has those kids. First question everybody asks me about missions, wherever we go, is it safe? Well, why would we go if it was? Pansies like you could go. Hey, are there good roads to where you're at? I want to respond with, I bet your baptismals are heated, aren't they? Do you get that special fruit of the loom with lace at the top? If we're to go into the Middle East and make it our home, if we're to see the bride of Christ shine in her glory, then we must learn to hear no threat. You know how many people have explained to me that I can't wear shorts, that I can't smoke cigars, that I can't talk like I do, I can't preach like I do, wine or whatever else I like to drink has got to be gone forever for going to the Middle East? Can I tell you I'm going to go be exactly who I am wherever I am and let the chips fall where they may? Because Benny and I didn't go take some kind of course on how to be more agreeable to the lion. He went into the pit and put it down. Amen. By the way, in our first trip to Turkey, not knowing a single person there, not one, not even knowing what city we wanted to go to, just praying and picking Antakya on a map because it's the place that we're first Christians. You know what Antakya has? Their first Christian convert in a long time. We must not love our lives so much as to shrink back from death. We're going to have to actually be the DCD, not just read about it. I want to show you a map. It's the places that we're currently working in the world regularly. Everywhere you see a push pin, the dollars that you have put in that box are going. Every place that you see a push pin. But more than that, we don't put push pins in places that we don't personally visit more than once in a year. 
If we're not there more than once in a year and we're not sending money regularly, there's no pushpin. These are the places that this little garage church is affecting on a monthly basis. And I'm proud as could possibly be of that. If we kept what we gave away, each pastor would live in his very own fine home and we would have the same kind of cars that the other pastors have and it would be an indictment on Christ. We would rather live together and drive old things that Baj has to fix every week to keep them going, but keep changing the world for Jesus. Here lately, there's a particular pushpin that's been occupying our mind. Let's go to that next map. When you see these seven little crosses on the left-hand side of your screen, the reason the right-hand side is stretched way over there is that's the city of Gaziantep in the far right corner. That's where we wrote those Christian songs about Muslims being saved. As far as we know, the first spirit-filled worship song written in a hundred years there. On the left side of the screen is the west side of Turkey. We wanted you to see how far where we're going is from where we've been. We're going to start in the west. We're going to move to the east and to the north by the Black Sea, right up in the corner by Georgia. Because we want to survey the entire country because we intend on 80 million Muslims getting saved. Now, while you're looking at this, you're looking at where this is. I want to read to you something, okay? You just stay staring at the screen. I will not lie to you. Revelation 1 in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. You may not have known it, but the seven churches that he's addressing are on your screen. Right now, that's the provenance of Asia. They're not in Africa. They're not in North America. They're not in Canada. (laughs) No Salvation Army jokes today. But the Salvation Army could beat the Canadian Army on a good day. (laughs) To the seven churches in the provenance of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. How many spirits? Seven. How many churches? Seven. You think something of God, some piece of God, some part of God's heart is wrapped up in each one of his churches? Yeah. It better be. It's his bride. Look at your girl and say, you got a piece of my heart, baby. You know what she's thinking right now? I got the whole thing. You just don't know it. Revelation 1.11, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. All seven of those churches are on that screen. You know, the churches that were written to in the book of Revelation, 100% of them are in Turkey. Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's take our next slide. Here, what you're seeing is a trade route goes between the churches. They were put in an order for a reason. All seven of the churches mentioned are in Turkey. And what's amazing is the churches that aren't mentioned. 
The book of Revelation does not mention the church at Jerusalem or the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or the church in Galatia or the church at Philippi or Thessalonica or so many others. Doesn't that make you want to know why? Man, if this is not the lion in the pit on a snowy day in our time, I don't know what is. Have you noticed that people always feel called to missions like in Hawaii? Oh, you know where I really feel called? I, called, I feel called to the, uh, the French Alps. Bet you do. Bet you do. The same reason that when you go on mission trips, they end in a shopping day, maybe a little spa day at the end, because after all, you need your vacation too, right? Can I tell you that no missionary anywhere in history ever lived or acted like that? They wouldn't have been considered a missionary. Now you can't get churches to go. Man named Richard Rogers that loves me and I love him. We've supported him for years. He was just pulling out his hair if he had any. Because when the gang violence got so bad, the cartel got so bad in Mexico, churches were canceling so often that he couldn't keep his building projects going. I mean, literally, they send the money but wouldn't come. And the problem is, is he needed them to build the roofs. He needed them to do those things. He said, what do I tell them? I said, tell them there's a small spirit-filled church that will send the women to do the work that the men won't do in those churches. He said, I can't do that. I said, then you can't run your business. You can't run your ministry. It's not going to work. It doesn't exist today. They built a multi-million dollar facility in Mexico to affect the people of Mexico and then decided it was too dangerous and they no longer go. I have to drive past that million dollar facility that I can no longer stay in because it's boarded up in case they ever decide to go back and we sleep on the dirt in the subdivisions that we're trying to minister to. But I wouldn't be robbed of that pleasure for all of the gold that they possess in their coffers. When you think about these churches in the book of Revelation and you recognize that they're in Turkey today, it becomes an interesting thing. The churches mentioned are in an order. They're an ancient trade route. It begins at the harbor city of Ephesus. I want to show you their modern equivalents. Let's go to the next slide. Here, we have a more zoomed-in version. And instead of saying Smyrna, for instance, it says Izmir on the map. But maybe that wording's a little small for you, but you can download these. They'll be on our website. Ephesus is Saluk. Smyrna is Izmir. Pergamon is Bergama, Thyatira, Akisar, Sardis, Salihai. You, you can see these. These are real places. In fact, you're not going to like this. The ruins of the churches are often still there. Did you hear the word ruins? That's because not in one of these places, not in one of these places today, is there a significant Christian population. Do you mean to tell me that the mighty churches of the book of Revelation, to whom Jesus personally wrote letters to, are all Muslim today? Yeah. Every single one of them. I don't know how much that bothers you. It kills me. Each has a unique history stretching into antiquity. The culture, the history, even the geography has a bearing that addresses the content of the great revelation that was given to John. 
In other words, if he wrote to a city, what he wrote to them had some bearing on their previous history. Even their geography is often being considered in the letter. It's like he knew them personally. I'd like to go through each of those seven with you, but that's the subject of another sermon. For now, let's consider their relative dates of founding. That's our next slide. Ephesus, about 1200 B.C. Ephesus was about 1200 B.C. The Roman emperor Domitian put his world headquarters called the Neochorus in Ephesus. They were putting to death Christians uh, in the first century at an alarming rate in Ephesus and the church was underground. After the death of Domitian and right at the end of the first century, Ephesus was 90% Christian. city of 500,000 people in Jesus' day. And it was 90% Christian today. Now Ephesus is 99% Muslim. I can't believe there's no gasp over that. Mighty spiritual Ephesus, where we learn about the spiritual armor of God, where we hear that we're seated at the right hand with Christ in heavenly realms. It's Muslim today. Christian blood was spilt there in the first century in the hundreds and the thousands. It's the very first church addressed in the book of Revelation. The very first. And it's Muslim today. You know why? Because we've become scared to go down into the pit on a snowy day. If there's two Moabites, we think we're outnumbered. Friends, you and God are a majority. When you think along the lines of 1,200, 1,500. How far apart are those two numbers? Somebody in here help a poor pastor out. 300 years. So it's not possible that they were named in conjunction with each other, is it? 300 years apart? Would somebody please ask George Washington what I ought to name my child? You can't. Why not? Because he'd been gone for 300 years. Pergamum. 1200 B.C. Thyatira, 300 B.C. How much time between 300 B.C. and 1500 B.C.? Uh, You'll see my point now. Let's go to the next slide. When you define the names of the cities in the order that they're listed in Revelation and the order that they appear on the trade route in the map, what you hear is Ephesus, the desired one, Smyrna, Myrrh or Death, Pergamos, The High Citadel, Thyatira, Labor of Love, Sardis, Prince of Joy, Philadelphia, Brotherly Love, Laodicea, a just people. When you see that and you're thinking on that, the desired one's death in the High Citadel was a labor of love by the Prince of Joy so that he could teach brotherly love to a just people. How does our God do this? over hundreds of years with pagan foundings. Wars were fought over these cities. One of them died and came back to life as a city. Another experienced a conquering like a thief in the night. Another had a giant earthquake and they had pillars in their houses to correct their problems. It is an incredible story. How much did God invest in that so that he could own it? How much did he invest when he said he holds them in his hand? How much 
has the church world gleaned from reading the letters that were first and foremost? If to no other place, first and foremost, were written to these churches, and those churches do not exist today. Am I the only one in here that finds that appalling? Something of the DCD ought to be boiling inside you that says we can go and we can convert the unconvertible. We can go and not back down from threat and we will take captives right out of the mouths of lions. While you're reflecting on the beauty of this interwoven historical pattern, consider these two verses. Revelation 1.11 I read earlier. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He orders them in the same order they appear on the map. He orders them in the trade route of the day. When you arrived in the harbor, you made your circuit and arrived back at the harbor. He names them and they are real physical locations that today are completely dominated by the darkness of Islam. So who is he addressing in Revelation 19? Turn with me to Revelation 19, 6. My favorite retort with C.T. Studd is the anti-DCD apparently does give a damn about their lives. There can only be one answer. We're hiding and protecting rather than daring our all, rather than risking our all. We're sitting back in self-indulgence rather than rescuing the lost. You know, the gates of hell are supposed to be on the defense against you. And instead, we hide in our churches and hope he doesn't bite us. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder and shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now ask yourself something. Who is the bride of Christ? Some would say Israel. Some would say the church. It's time for a second question while you're contemplating the first. Who was this letter written to? What is the Peshat? What is the plain language of the text? He named seven specific churches. Does it bother you that there's almost no Christian witness left and the powerhouse churches of the first century have become Islamic centers today? I agree that the bride of Christ is Jew and Gentile. That it's one new entity. But can we really allow the eradication of all seven churches named in the text? Wow. Is that sobering? You should write a book called What Happened While I Was Drinking My Latte. I wonder if... 
I wonder if your homes and your children were under the threat of Islam today, whether you would be appalled with people that have the armament to stop it, have the finances to stop it, have the great king and cure of this spiritual cancer and didn't stop it. I wonder how you would feel if they were your children. I wonder how you would feel if it was your wife who was taken from you and given to a man that already had three wives. See, what we might forget is historically there have been a lot of empires to rule this region. Let's put that up. I want to walk you through this. In the, Are you interested at all? Do I have your attention? This is the Babylonian Empire. Do you remember Daniel 2 and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? You are that great head of gold, uh, he was told. The Babylonian Empire. And what you see there is the area that it ruled. The Mediterranean is on the west, and it stretches all the way to the Persian Gulf in the east. I mean, that is a huge empire. Now, if you are Nebuchadnezzar, and you are given a dream that says they're going to be a great statue, and you are the head of gold of this statue, would you envision that we were talking about some other kingdom somewhere else when he's told you are the head of gold? Probably not, right? It turns out that after Daniel 2 calls him the head of gold, it says that there's going to be a chest and arms of silver. Let me show you what that looks like. This is the Medes and the Persian Empire's beginning. Do you see how it touches the Mediterranean and it stretches all the way to the Indian Ocean? You see how it starts uh, at the Mediterranean and goes so far to the right of your screen? Look at it as we get into the Persian Empire. Everything that is in green there is the kingdom that is being referenced as a chest and arms of silver. It's interesting, isn't it? Watch the Grecian Empire. The Grecian Empire also starts at the Mediterranean, except it also stretches up by the Black Sea and encompasses Turkey. And then it goes all the way to the right-hand side of your screen. It goes way, way past the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and actually gets to the doorsteps of India when Alexander died. Hey, what kingdom is next when you read Daniel? You see how reflexive that is? This is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at its height. The Roman Empire does rule Israel, that's true. And it stretches way westward in the north uh, part of Africa and way western into Europe where most of us are from, you know where it doesn't stretch to at all? It never gets anywhere close to Babylon. Who was the dream given to? Does that present an interesting riddle for you? If I don't have your attention now, let me, let me just walk through this with you just a little bit, okay? Uh, we have a head of gold, right? We have a chest of, uh, uh, of silver and arms of silver, we have a belly and thighs of bronze. And then we have legs of iron that split into two, feet of iron and clay. You've probably heard many times in many Bible conferences, most of them you've heard, taught by me, that said that there's a fourth empire that would be split into two. And we often saw that 
as the Roman Empire, an eastern and western half. How many of you are familiar with that? Okay, now speak out loud in church. Say, yes, pastor. Yes, pastor. I'm having to re-examine some of that for a lot of reasons. While it ruled Israel, it never ruled Babylon. Not at any time. For most of its history, it never got within 500 miles of Babylon. What's more so is, think of our statue. The eastern and the western hemisphere. You know, they only coexisted for about 140 years. So for most of history, that statue was like this. I started to wonder if there was another alternative. Now, I obviously can't teach all of this today, but I want to suggest the reasons for Turkey are important to me. Is that okay with you? Let's take our next slide. This is the Islamic Caliphate in about the year 900. Do you see how it's taken over uh, all of northern Africa, all of Israel, stretched all the way up to the Black Sea, over to the Caspian Sea, down to the Persian Gulf, and all the way to India? Do you see how it ruled exactly the same areas as Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece? It also splits into two legs, a Sunni and a Shia branch. It also seems to have died. You know where it died, by the way? About a hundred years ago, a man named Ataturk, the father of the Turkish people, decided to abolish the caliphate and adopt a secular government in Turkey. And when he did that, it shattered the iron grip of Islamic rule on all of the nations. I'm not suggesting he's a good guy. He also murdered lots and lots of Christians. You know, just last month, there was a referendum in Turkey. A referendum where a man named Erdogan ran on a platform that's going to keep him in power till 2028. And do you know what he promised the people? That he would revive the Ottoman Empire and that Turkey would lead it. The place where the church was first addressed, first powerful, first loved, first told about patient endurance, now does not exist. But the Islamic Caliphate is trying to reestablish itself in Turkey. Do you think that that is significant? You could read in Daniel 7 about the lion, the leopard, and the bear. And you might see a similar story. You could read Revelation 17 and find a similar story. But let me put it in much more simple terms. Could we put 1 John 2, 22 through 23 on the screen? Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Do you know that the Quran specifically says that God can have no Son? Do we have that slide? I think we do. It's probably two ahead. I want you to see the chapter and verse if we can... Strain it right out of our media. The Quran says, 19th Surah, 88th verse. They said, the most gracious has begotten a son. By the way, the they there are Christians. It's you. 
You have uttered a gross blasphemy. That's what the Quran teaches. It is blasphemy to say God has a son. The heavens are about to shatter. The earth is about to tear asunder. And the mountains are about to crumble because they, the they is you, claim that the most gracious has begotten a son. It is not befitting that the most gracious, that he should beget a son. By the way, let's go ahead and put John 16, 2 on the screen. They will put you out of the synagogue. Surely that happened in the first century, of course. Not a lot of that going on right now. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. What is the one people group on the planet right now that think they're doing God a favor by killing you? I wonder why there aren't more missionaries to this area of the world. Could it be that we are staring at the very spirit of the Antichrist in the geographical region that Gog and Magog are? Could it be that we are staring at Daniel 11's king of the north wanting to invade Israel from the north? Could it be that we are facing the Antichrist spirit of our time and the church is asleep at the wheel? Wow. So, Pastor, you know, I don't know about all of that prophecy and you, you threw a real wrench at me with the maybe it's not Rome thing. Well, how hard is 1 John 2.22? How hard is that to understand? If you deny the Son, it's an Antichrist spirit. Now, Church, I don't know if you understand what is at stake, but the reason that we're preaching our hearts out and trying to raise up a DCD kind of attitude here is because these seven churches of Revelation weren't told you're going to be defeated. They weren't told you're going to be wiped off the pages of history. They weren't told we're going to have mosque built on top of you. They were told that they would be in the battle of their life. But if they overcame, certain things would happen. How many of you would like to know what those things are? Turn with me in the book of Revelation. We're going to read the seven overcoming statements of the church of Jesus Christ. All of them were in Turkey. And you claim their promises. How can we claim their promises and let them disappear? It can't be done. There will have to be a revival in Turkey. Yeah, I would hope for an amen there. I'm risking my life for it. The Arizinas are risking their lives for it. The Parsons are risking their lives for it. You know, I'm very thankful for this church. We've given our lives to it. I've become comfortable giving my life to it. It's a whole other thing to go somewhere else and go down into the pit on a snowy day. But when do you ever get to decide you've done enough? Nothing could be better for you in the kingdom than to get a chance to start over every now and then. To take an honest and hard look at what you've accumulated and why. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about accolades. I'm talking about so many things that you didn't have when you got born again. And now you have and you're scared to lose. Consider, you prophesy and it's the first week you're born again. Nobody expects you to know anything. So if you get it wrong, it's no big deal. You prophesy now and you misspeak a word. You've been a Christian 20 years. You're supposed to know better. How embarrassing. See how you gain something that you're now worried about losing? See, that kind of stuff can accumulate in your life till you really become just kind of paralyzed by your pleasures. 
rather watch Netflix, rather do anything else. I mean, after all, you've kind of been there and done that. You know what that produces? Generations that lose whole continents. Islam is rising all over the world. And while I hate Islam, I have learned to love Muslims. It's surprising to me because I had a little problem with that in the late 90s. And uh, the Lord's been fixing my heart for a long, long time about this. And I started to see something. It actually, now we'll really offend the rest. It actually started to remind me of the Roman Catholic areas that I grew up in. I started to see, wow, the organization is as wicked as the day is long. After all, nobody in their right mind leaves their children to be babysit by that church. But the people themselves, you know, it's just all they've ever known. They didn't know there was an alternative. I showed up in Lafayette, Louisiana and met people from first grade all the way through college had never been to a non-Catholic institution. Not, not in school, not religiously. They didn't know there was a reformation. And when they started getting spirit-filled and miracles started happening, I, man, did I fall in love with them. Well... I had a very negative view when I got there until people started to change around me and I realized we're all exactly the same and we need the life sa Well, guess what happened to me in Antakya in Gaziantep in Kiles? I saw people that have just never heard the truth. In a city with 1.3 million people, we walked around for three days and could not find anybody who had ever met a Christian. They could tell us what a Christian was, at least what they thought it was, like you can tell me what a unicorn is. But they had never seen one. They took us to churches that were no longer churches. Mosques have been built over the top of them. I went and stood on the railway where one million Armenian Christians in 1917 were rolled right out of the country and executed in the Syrian desert. And while we were doing it, we could feel the ground shaking from the bombs that were going off in Aleppo just a stone's throw away. That's incredible. This is happening in our time. This is not a geopolitical message. This is a heart of Christ message. We want the promises of God. There are mothers in here that want their children to walk right with the Lord. There are fathers in here that want their families to be led right in the Lord. There are people in this room that, that you want everything that the kingdom can do for you. And the kingdom is about doing it for others and trusting that God will take care of you. That's, that's an incredible thing that you can actually be being poured into to your own detriment. As you're in the book of Revelation, are you there? Let me just draw on one analogy from my time in Israel. The Jordan River starts at Mount Hermon. It has three tributaries and it runs north and south. It goes the entire length of Israel. It flows into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a sea at all. It's, it's a great lake. It's fresh water, which is good because I don't like sharks at all. The Jordan that flows in the north end of the Sea of Galilee also flows out the south end. And as it descends in Israel, it's what the Jordan means, the descender, it gets to the lowest place on the surface of the earth where God drove Sodom and Gomorrah into the earth, which is, of course, the Salt Sea, known as the Dead Sea. This is two bodies of water in the same country, 
100 miles apart, fed by the same source. And one is teeming with life, and the other nothing can live in. You ask yourself, what is the difference? One has something being poured in it and out of it. The other is only being poured into. You want to know where a healthy Christian walk starts? In doing for others, in stretching out for the gospel. You need to be looking for the lion and the bear. You need to look for those that are suffering spiritual violence and see how you can help. And then you have to break your own arms off. See, the way that you think you can help is you can give money to it. The way you think you can help is you give them some of the same crap that has entrapped you. They need the life-changing, self-sacrificing, all-encompassing power of God, not your money, not the filth that has already entrapped and tied your hands. But we think that the gospel is a humanitarian exercise in philanthropy. <laughs> Hard word for me to say. It's actually going and giving away your life so that they might find life. What do you think is easier, to give away your life or to write a check? I want, to, I want you to hear what's at stake. We're closing in the seven letters. See, the book of Revelation is one book, but it's actually a collection of seven letters. An angel showed up representing Jesus Christ and said, Hey, John, I've brought the revelation of Jesus Christ to you. And what he says that you are to do is write a letter and address each letter to each church by name. And they address specific problems, they give them solutions, and then tell them about rewards if they will do what they're told. It couldn't be any more personal. It's like an email straight to you that is not from your grandmother in a long list of uh, forwards. It's to you. And these churches do not exist today, but they will again. Are you ready? Yes. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear that the Lord is saying something to one church, but expecting all the churches to hear? To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Who gets to eat from the tree of life? Overcomes what? If it's not the Antichrist spirit of our time, I don't know what it would be you would have to overcome. Overcome your sleepiness to get up and make it to the donut shop before church? Overcome what? What gives you the right to eat from the tree of life that you face down the devil of your day for the glory of Jesus Christ? This is the first thing said to the first church. A promise to the overcomer. And yet today we're told, if you bow your head, if you close your eyes, if you fill out a decision card, then you are good to go. Of course, Jesus Christ writing a letter personally to a church says you're going to have to overcome. It's almost as if you would be attacking hell and hell would be fighting back. And you would have to overcome if you wanted to eat from the tree of life. What are you overcoming? Is it overcoming you? 
How can you be sure you have the tree of life if you don't have the lying, killing spirit of an overcomer in you? Oh, therein lies why we don't want to be tested, isn't it? We're scared we might fail the test. Can I tell you, as a man leading a congregation, I often fail the test, but he never does. I often fail the test. And you know what he does? He lets me repeat it and he fills me. The more broken I am, the more stronger I become. My falling is my rising. My humiliation is my exaltation. And my exaltation is my humiliation. The harder you beat me into the ground, the more he picks me up. But you don't get that if you don't even try. You don't get that if you don't go to war. Oh, man. Ought to be nobody more miserable than a Christian with no devil to attack. How about the church at Smyrna? Look at verse 11. By the way, we show up in Smyrna right after Istanbul. That's as far as our itinerary has gotten. And you know the Christian that, that we saw uh, get born again in Antakya? We're like, how are we going to get him to Izmir? Let's figure out how, how we can fly him. Let's, let's do that. Others said maybe we should go there first. I mean, it would make sense. And doesn't that make sense? Yet we felt the Lord leading us in a different direction. We all agreed. We contacted him last week. Do you know what's happened since we were last there? His entire family's moved hundreds of miles away from Antakya to Izmir. Even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Do you mean that, by the way, Smyrna means death. Do you mean to tell me that they would need constant encouragement that when you face death, you're not going to die a second time. You can't be hurt. The worst they can do to you is kill you, so don't you even hear their threats. They have no threat on you. You are poor in this world, but will be rich in the next. Amen. Oh, that they could say that about us. We're going to have to bring something of that there. You know why? Because they did it for us in the first century or the gospel never would have gotten to you. See, we have to reach backward to yesterday's warrior and find out what we must become. Because yesterday is not here now. But that warrior spirit must be there then. We're reaching backwards to see what men used to be like so that we can know what they should be like now. Because when I look around, I just don't see much masculine holiness in the church. To be poor and possess everything is powerful indeed. Look at Pergamum. The second chapter and 17th verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Who would like to have? Fresh bread from heaven. Who would like to have the new name? The official pardon from the king of kings. The stone that is white because you've been healed by his touch. Yes. 
You have to go to war and you have to overcome. It's not for the side sitter. It's not for the one that is in Breck League. Everybody gets a trophy. It's for the one who wins. And how do we win? By giving up our lives. Oh man, what danger we do ourselves by retaining them. What harm we do ourselves. You know what is the most enjoyable, satisfying thing you'll ever do? When you climb out of the pit over the dead lion, knowing that there's no way that you could have won that. But his glory was so great you couldn't not try. And in your failure you felt something of his strength. And it spoke one message to you. You're not alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I will deliver the death blow to the enemy if you'll but get in the ring. Oh, man. You'd find a lot less time to sin, too. In the second chapter, in the 26th verse, we go to Thyatira. Again, all of these in Turkey. To him who overcomes and does my will to the altar... To him who overcomes and gets a great Christian book and finishes most of it. (laughs) To him who overcomes and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the? I will give authority over what? All the peoples of the world will be subject to the princes of God. Now, let's just be honest. If you've never cared about your neighbor, much less the peoples of the world, are you fit to rule them? We want the results of the overcoming. You're going to have to get out there and overcome. Third chapter, Sardis, verse 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. What was white according to Revelation 19.6? Righteous deeds. When you overcome, you like them, those that have gone before us, the warriors of yesteryear, will be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. Listen, the promise of the overcomer was that he would clothe you in himself. The promise of the overcomer is you could eat manna from heaven. The promise of the overcomer is you could eat of the tree of life, but you had to get in the ring and try. What battle do you need to pick today? What do you have to do to put to death the lion of apathy? What do you have to do to put to death the bear of complacency? What do you have to do to kill the giant of hidden sin in your life? What do you have to do? Because the only way you win is if you get in the pit on the snowy day. The only way that you win. And you enter the pit knowing you don't have what it takes, but He does. This is what it means to be in Christ. The end of you and beginning of Him. Say it, the end of me me. and beginning of Him. That's what it means to be in Christ. Is there too much you in there? Oh, are you in the ivory high tower looking down on the rest of us for our carnal ways? You know what? I am terribly carnal. I'm working to cut it right out of my life. 
but it's a whole lot easier to, to accept your suggestion if you claim to be a lemon tree and I see a lemon on you. It's like D.L. Moody said, Sir, I don't like the way that you evangelize. I, I agree with you, ma'am. I don't like the way I evangelize either. How do you do it? Well, I, I don't. <clears throat> then I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. So maybe we are carnal, hopelessly flawed and broken. Seems to be the kind he likes to use. But at least we're trying. Why don't you bring some of your perfection with us to the field? We could use it. When Buddy descends 14,000 feet in the Andes Mountains to find a humble people at the bottom of Colca Canyon that had not heard the gospel since the 80s, he probably could use a lot of your instruction about how to do it as you take each step with him. Amen. Of course, the last time I was there with Buddy, I, uh, I didn't see you. In fact, I didn't see you in India or Romania or Africa or Central America. Isn't it interesting how you never see the people that know how to do the work? in the work. Turns out that it's a lot easier to talk about being an overcomer than to get out there and be one. You know what the spirit of the DCD is? I will give my all. I will do my all. I have nothing left to lose. Oh, come on, church. Some of you are as DCD as it gets, and I know it. And some of you are content to bask in the warmth of their fire. There's another fire awaiting you, though. Philadelphia. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar. Somebody say pillar. Pillar, pillar in the temple of my God. You know what it takes to be an elder in this church? You have to overcome. We need more elders. We're supposed to have at least five by the last vision we got. You know what we need to have more elders? More overcomers. You know what you need to have more overcomers? More disciples. It turns out that from the pool of disciples is where you get every other office. That's where you get them. So we have to be discipling. We have to win not converts but disciples. And from those disciples will come your apostles, your prophets, your teachers, your pastors, your evangelists, your elders. Are we still trying to live on something from a long time ago that somebody else did? I love our elders. They're young, handsome men, but they won't live forever. Who will be the next elder in the church? It will only come from those who are overcoming. To him who overcomes, I will make a, temp a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. To be inscribed by the finger of God with your function and your purpose and His. To be placed as a support in the house of God and never risk falling out of it. And how do you get there? You have to overcome. You can't overcome if you've never entered the battle. We're asking you to enter the battle. The seventh church, Laodicea. This is where we make our end today. Because if I 
reading to you about seven churches that were told to overcome and do not exist today, but they overcame in their day. I have to ask you, where do they come from again? If they must exist when Christ returns, if they must be there and they are not there now, do you understand what's at stake? They must be there and they're not there now. You're going to hear a pastor today on on record somewhere saying Jesus Christ could return at any minute. To what? The churches that he said would exist don't exist. Could it be that we say Jesus could return at any minute because he's already done for us what we want him to do and it never occurred to us that we were supposed to be doing something for him? To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me. Who's the me there? Who wants to sit with Jesus? Jesus. Who wants to sit with Jesus? Jesus. The right to sit with Jesus on his throne, just as he overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. If you want to be seated on heavenly thrones, it comes from entering the battle, you dying and allowing him to win through you. You won't die there if you're not dying here now. You won't give up your life there if you can't give it up now. So I'm asking you, Christian, what stands in your way? Man, when you think about it and something stands in the way, do you know what the Bible word is for what stands in your way of overcoming? An idol. It's an idol. If you don't go into the pit because you might lose your job, then your job's idolatrous. If you don't go into the pit because you're worried about your children, then God gave you a child that you've now exalted above your God. Don't believe me? Read Genesis 22 and John 3.16. He either has all of your life or effectively has none of your life because whatever portion he doesn't have is where you live. The only way to enter the kingdom is to lose your life for it. That is what is overcoming. We overcome the world through trusting Jesus in every area at all times. This is what 1 John says. Oh man, do we have work to do? It's not even reasonable to expect a church this size to win Turkey. But it wasn't reasonable to think Ben and I would kill that lion. Not reasonable to see a little guy take on a seven-foot Egyptian, take a spear from him and kill him, but he did it. It's not reasonable to take on two of Moab's best and win, but he did it. And by the way, if he was a good little priest sitting with his clerical collar somewhere, playing in his girly little robe, the world would have loved him. They'd have loved him because he'd have been just like them. He'd have fit all of the norms. God picks people who will not fit into a norm. But you better learn to take your nonconformist attitude and turn it on the world and not turn it on the kingdom. Oh, come on, church. Is there not any holy indignation in here? Not any holy rebellion that says, I won't be crammed into a Starbucks life. I'm going into the pit on a snowy day. This church is not growing lollipops. We are growing resurrected soldiers. What we are doing is not trying to make better men. We're taking dead men and teaching them how to live and give life to the world. That's what we're after and nothing less. Could you stand to your feet? 